When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. The relaxed, calming, late night live tones of the final word weekly edition. It's not frantic. We don't have to do it in 15 minutes or fewer, inevitably going over to 20. We don't have to do anything in 30 seconds or less if we don't want to. Jeff Lemon with you. Adam Collins is with me. We're at Edge Baston, the Baston of Edges, uh, a, a cricket ground in the town of Birmingham where they ham Birmings. And uh, it's, it's, it's nice to be on the longer weekly program, Adam. We're sitting on a sofa in the commentary boxes at Edgebaston. When I was growing up, my brother and I used to talk about Edgebaston as being, you know, we used to talk about going to Edgebaston where we nick each other off and so forth. Of course, it's where Mark Taylor made his rearguard century in the second innings of the first Ashes Test in 1997 to save his career. Mm. It's the venue where I saw possibly the best Test match. Well, close enough to the best test. I reckon I've covered anyway. Between England and India last year, it's where the 1999 World Cup semi-final was between Australia and South Africa, that famous tie. It's, it's a lot of things. It's the and, place and where it's they... where Flintoff and Brettley had their little... Flintoff and Brettley. in the how middle. Could I, how Two-run difference. How could I forget? It's, it's where they invented the roller skates. Wow. It's where they invented the microwave, I think, comes from Birmingham as well. Yep. Maybe, I, have, I have a feeling it might be the ballpoint pen as well. It, yep. it's, it's a city of invention. And I'm glad that we're here. I always have a good time the, in Birmingham. Probably a better time than, than than what Joe Root had with David Warner one night six years ago. It feels a long time ago, that doesn't it? Have you ever been to the walkabout in Birmingham? I have taken several photos at the front of the walkabout in Birmingham. Yeah. Last year, a couple of colleagues. But you I haven't been in it. No, I know I have. Yes, I you have. have. Okay, good. The, the gender balance in the walkabout in Birmingham is 95.5. It is, it is pretty much... All blokes, this is a Friday night we went, all blokes. Um, all the time. All blokes all the time between the age of about, uh, I'd say about 20, 22 and 26. Yep. And that is that is it. That, that's all it deals in. It's certainly on a Friday night. We were there during the test last year. We, we visited there. I mean, for the same reason that I went back and visited Embargo recently. Well, that's why I was asking to wonder if you had the full suite because you've been to the Avenue in Perth <laughs> where various England incidents happen. You've been to Embargo <laughs> in Bristol and you've been to the walkabout in Birmingham. I have. I have. Uh, uh, Becca White, who listens to this show, she and I said to each other a couple of years ago that we've got to have a list of different infamous cricket venues to visit Bourbon after and hours. <laughs> Bourbon and Beefsteak was on there as well. So this is two of them. And, and yes, the, 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 the Embargo visit was during uh, when Australia were playing against 
Afghanistan in yep. the World Cup opener. I, of course, been to a bar game once before. I went there a month before Ben Stokes went there on a Sunday night as well. Just I'd to al- lay some ground. I'd also been there at three in the morning uh, on that same on that same in that same summer. Um, I'd also eaten the cheesy chips that the that Kai and Billy, who ended up becoming somewhat of a I wouldn't say an alibi for Stokes. That's the wrong word. They, they, they corroborated Stokes' story and they never were used as witnesses in court. That's a whole different story. They had the cheesy chips. Mm. So, so the Sun reported and, and I had the cheesy chips as well that night. So there's a lot of different... A lot of parallels. A lot of different... It's of like different Pakistan in 92, Pakistan in 2019. <laughs> it's just, just spooky how they go together. We're in Birmingham. And that list of things that you mentioned being invented here, that's a, a party trick of George DeBell, Mr. Birmingham, who loves yes. to, to roll those out. Of course, he was on the podcast last week he's uh, he's the world's expert on joss butler who we were interviewing um had a really nice response to that so thanks to kookaburra for teeing up joss and getting him on during a busy world cup and george for coming on the show and all of you people for listening to it yeah there was a great response to joss coming on the show I think we all agree it would have been great to spend an hour with him, um, but George filled in the gaps really nicely for us uh, after that that Joss chat. And as yep. you say, Jeff, we can't do these things without Kookaburra. They've been phenomenal to us, and they've been able to get us a whole series of players on the show over the last couple of years. And, and we'll con- we'll continue to do that. Well, we know that it's good to get a balance between the two of us talking and us interrogating uh, others. Well, not interrogating; it's a quite a fierce word, isn't it? Us, <laughs> us exploring the stories of where were you on the night of September the sixteenth? <laughs> yes. Because on your Crick Info profile, it's suggests you made 16 from 32 balls <laughs> yeah exploring the stories of um, various people who've, who've done amazing and if you have got a suggestion and they don't need to necessarily be aligned with Kookaburra I should add but if you've got a, a person who you would like us to, to talk to we're all ears on that um, yeah. we're, we're, uh, they don't we, have to be famous either they could just be really interesting yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to be someone who played the game, for that matter. We spoke to Will Anderson recently. Jared Waitley was part of our list of interviews. Earth Boy, Earth Boy. I mean, we, we've done we've done a series of interviews that are tangentially related to cricket, but are linked enough to, to have a yak to. So, if you think that there's someone out there who you want us to get a hold of, uh, yeah. yeah, we're happy to have a try. Maybe not just like your mate Steve-O, who's pretty funny, but you know, no, <laughs> someone someone no. with a story to tell. We have someone on the show today with a story to tell, and we wanted we've been wanting to do this interview for quite a while. We finally. Yeah. We're able to line it up. Natalie Germanos is a broadcaster from South Africa who, and, and the really interesting point for us was that Australian broadcasters were recently acting as though it was a revelation that they'd put women on men's cricket coverage for the first time last summer. Nat's been doing this for nearly 15 years, um, calling men's cricket and men's tests in South Africa and increasingly in Britain and elsewhere around the world. So we wanted to have a chat with her ahead of the Women's Ashes, which she'll be calling. So if you're listening to that on ABC um, or BBC, you'll, you'll be hearing her voice on that test match. Yeah, the timing was great, wasn't it? She's been an integral part of the coverage during this World Cup uh, has covered men's cricket extensively as much as she's covered women's cricket. I think sometimes there can be sort of a pigeonholing that goes on about if you're a bloke, you call men's cricket, and if you're a woman, you call women's cri- women's cricket rather. And oh, except it goes the other way. If, if you're a bloke, you can also call women's cricket. That's fine. Well, well yeah, you're allowed to transition one way. No, no, yeah, no. That, that, that's yeah. a good point. You can, but, but nevertheless, there is sort of a, a, a bit of a, yeah. a demarcation of sorts, and and Nat has done a great job of bridging that and. The fact that she's been here for the World Cup and done a fantastic job on radio and now she's about to start the Women's Ashes as a we. So for the next 
week or so. It's mm. a fairly hectic schedule that we're keeping. We're going to be covering both the World Cup and the Women's Ashes One Day Internationals at the same time. Well, not literally at the same no, time. No, literally at the same time. Uh, the first two. The first two. The first two women's games are, are, clashing. On, That's are right. on the days of World Cup matches. So yeah. if you've been listening to the World Cup daily, thank you, firstly, because that's been we've had an amazing response to that of uh, all these people saying they've made it part of their routine and jumping in the car or getting on the train early in the morning, Australian time especially, but then people elsewhere around the world too, c- keeping up to date with the World Cup. So that's been really heartening to hear. That was exactly what we hoped would happen. Yep. But we've also got the women's ashes on at the same time. We'll be at the women's games while also following the men's games. We'll be still doing the World Cup daily as best we can off the TV and we'll also be reporting on the women's games. We're, we're looking to do the daily pod throughout the Ashes, hopefully, but in order to get the focus on it, we'll be basically starting the Women's Ashes coverage full-time from the Test match and we'll be doing what we can during the one day as given the other or the writing deadlines and newspaper deadlines and so on we have around the women's series so it's it's all happening we're going to do our best and we'll see what unfolds basically yeah it, it does kind of work because these two games that clash are day night games at Leicester yep. which start on well, it's Tuesday, Thursday this week. I'm not quite sure when this podcast will come out, but yeah. let's assume it's somewhere in between there. So we'll be at Leicester for both of those. So if you want to follow uh, the Women's Ashes closely, just you know where to find us on Twitter and f- social media and whatever else. We're both covering it for a variety of different places and it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and like you say, Jeff, we'll be at Taunton for the Test match and we'll shift gears after the Men's World Cup final yeah. to be doing We've got two whole days off. We'll, we'll yeah. take two days off to think, decompress and yeah, then I, I, down I, into a Test match. Yeah, I said, to, I said to my girlfriend the other day, she's like, right, I've taken a week off after the World Cup final and we're going to go, and I go, uh, uh, um, 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 uh, um, uh, we can go to Taunton a day earlier, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that didn't go over so well. But the important point here is that we get to go to Taunton a day earlier, which is always thrilling. It's always a thrilling place. <laughs> no, it's going to be a good laugh, the, the test match. I love spending time with that women's cricket crew that we get the chance to dip in and out of at major tournaments and major series and whatnot. So that's going to be a, a really enjoyable part of our summer, as is going to be turning the focus of this podcast to the women's ashes for that period of time. Sort of in between uh, the World Cup finishing and the, the men's ashes starting, there's a nice little window there. As I say, we'll be down at Taunton. We'll hopefully be doing the daily podcast throughout that period of time. It's going to be a lot of fun. I was looking over the squads, um, you know, writing up the preview, and the Australian lineup is formidable these days. I mean, it generally has been, but even more so because they basically, if you guess an 11 out of the 14 they've given us, they basically bat down to 10, if not 11. They're, they've got almost everyone can bowl. It's, there's a multiplicity of options for basically any scenario. And you go through that top order and, and you look at, you know, Healy and Mooney, who will probably open, who've, I mean, Healy's gone to stratospheric levels the last yep. couple of years after more modest returns through the first years of her career. Beth Mooney's settled, Meg Lanning's back um, and, and settled in after that injury break at, at first drop. Elise Perry's going to bat four. Rachel Haynes will probably bat five. And then on you go down through the list, it's sort of, it's almost tough to see where they squeeze Elise Villani into the team who can be so destructive. And even you just look at the it's, the Lanning and Perry numbers. They've got the, so many massive partnerships together. And I know often there's too much focus on them as players, but in one day internationals, in fifty over stuff, that's their jam. That's mm. that's their format. Sure, they've done great things in the others, but Meg Lanning a dozen hundreds in seventy two games, seventy two one day internationals at a runner ball, which is ridiculous. And Elise Perry, since she went up, 
the order to number five in 2013, so in the last six years, 46 innings, 26 times she's made over 50. And she made her first 100 earlier this year, so she's crossed that barrier too. So just it must be so imposing being England looking at that and thinking, well, Jesus, you know, where do you, how do you break through that block of batting? Yeah, Australia won the one day as in the women's Ashes 2-1 last time around, winning the first two rubbers, and that was without Lanning, who was that injured mm. Uh, with the shoulder surgery she had after the 2017 World Cup. So as it turns out, Meg Lanning's not played a lot of one-day cricket at all for two years. So no. um, th- those numbers, while stratos- stratospheric, is that a word? Yeah. Um, has, has, haven't had a chance to really add to those that often. Yeah, Mostly just earlier this 20 year. 20-over cricket. She played three against New Zealand That's earlier right. this year. Yeah, and, so. and that was kind of, an, and, and looked like she was starting to get back into her, her rhythm. England did win that World Cup in 2017. I guess the... the, the uh, the question that you've got to ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves through the series, is the gap between England and Australia getting bigger? Mm. And if it is, um, why is it getting bigger? I'm sure England are, are very mindful of this. Uh, we used to kind of think of England and Australia as one or two out and then, and then, then I guess the peloton of sorts. And the yep. peloton really was one team, wasn't it? It, it was New Zealand and maybe on their day, um, India and, and the West Indies. Now, you can definitely include South Africa in that chasing group. But you it's can probably though, cross the West Indies off it because they've been appalling the last couple of years. That's right. With the exception of T20 cricket, they've been, they've been getting worse. So it's not like there's a... Uh, you know, the inclination is to call it a two-speed economy. It's sometimes I feel like it's a four-speed economy. Like there is distinct lanes that different sides are running in. Yeah. And I think we want England and Australia to always be in the same in the same lane together, mm. if you like, to continue with this tortured analogy. But I'm not certain they are. And I'm not quite sure if I know why either. Yeah. Because just- on paper, England are fantastic as well. And they're improving and they're equally professional. The, the Kia Super League over here has been revelatory. Yep. Um, they play, most of their players have been involved in the Big Bash League. So there's no tangible reason why Australia would have grown that way I think in many respects it's above the shoulders by that I mean after the 2017 World Cup Australia were furious and they were fragmented and they spent a lot of time getting their act together ahead of that women's ashes but Mm. especially after that um, with a lead up to the 2018 Women's World T20 in the Caribbean and they were formidable pretty much unbeatable there I know they lost one game but that was after they qualified for the semi-finals and, and all the rest of it so this is going to be a really interesting series to see where these two sides are at. I'm not going to suggest for a heartbeat that England won't win a game or anything like that. I'm not going to make some outlandish prediction. But if England do poorly, because remember they drew the series in Australia in yeah. 17, 18 on points. Based on taking a couple of T20s That's at right. the end and, and levelling it up. If England do really poorly, I, I wouldn't be staggered. And I don't really know why that is. So I'm interested yeah. to kind of go through this with over the next few weeks. On the other hand, I'd be thrilled if England did do well because it would be, it would suggest that the teams are closer than what it might look on paper right now. And again, I yep. I find it hard to put a finger on why. Yeah, I, I had the same sort of feeling because that's the that's the kind of gut feel I've got. And then you run through the list, and there's so much ability. You know, when you look at who's likely to play a 50 over game, Tammy Beaumont and Amy Jones opening up. Heather Knight, Sarah Taylor through the middle, Nat Siver, who can be the most destructive in the world on her day. You know, they, they line up pretty well. Sarah Taylor's about to, she'll she'll make her thousandth ODI run against Australia pretty early in this series. Yeah, and, and the fact that Sarah Taylor may be the 11th player pick for this side right now is uh, odd. That is, by that I mean mm. her spot with the bat isn't what I'd call absolutely cemented in. Yeah. And Amy Jones has been so fantastic recently uh, since her elevation up the order. As Mark Robinson, the England coach, always says, she's the second best keeper in the world, which I'm sure is a bit of a sledge at Elisa Healy, by the way. But yeah. And, you know, I don't want to get into that, but she's a fine keeper, is what I'm trying to say about Amy Jones. And there might be an efficiency they can make there with Sarah, because oftentimes mm. she's out of the side, doesn't tour as much as she otherwise would, yep. didn't play the World T20 last year, of course, didn't play for a year in 2016-17 either until the 2017 World Cup. So 
that shows they're pretty strong too. And, and this Amy Jones uh, story will be interesting through the summer. Yet to make an international turn. I don't know how mm-hmm. that's possible. She's been so consistent in the last 12 to 18 months. She learned a lot playing for WA and playing in the in the WA system before she went to the Scorchers. She missed out on the 17-18 Ashes and she was gutted by it. She thought her career may never reach the level she wanted it to and it's been one direction after that for her. She's been outstanding. So uh, she's the one to watch in this series for mine. And the other one is, is Sophie Eccleston who made her Ashes debut last time around in the one-day K-Pup, got bowled beautifully in the Test match at North Sydney. Um, you know, on another day, if not for Elise Perry, she might have she might have been a match-winning bowler in that in that match. But she's got better and better. She was brilliant last year in uh, in T Twenty Fair against New Zealand and South Africa, and I reckon that uh, as a young bowler, she's really made herself the number one spitter in the side. Danny Hazel's retired. Laura Marsh is a veteran in the team. Alex Hartley's nowhere. She's not in the squad at all, and she she played in that World Cup final yeah. in 2017. So a lot will come down to, I think, Amy Jones and Sophie Eccleston. Which is unfortunate because Alex Hartley has the best chat and and also the the most comical approach to batting of, of anybody amongst the two oh, sides. Yeah. Isn't she? She's a wonderful ray of sunlight, really, in this whole <laughs> in this whole industry that we work in. Jeff, she's a brilliant, uh, brilliant person, and I'm sure she'll be back at some point. I, I feel that it, it's it's the block of Australian batting versus England's relative lack of depth in bowling. That's that's where I think the the feeling that this might be one sided goes for me because Catherine Brunt is basically holding her body and her career together on pure stubbornness. You know she's she absolutely gives everything she has every time, but you know she's tapering off rather than, than tapering up. Anya Shrubsole often looks like she's having to carry too much of the load herself, and sometimes she can do it, but sometimes she can't, especially against Australia. And then there's not a lot to fall back on. You know, Kate Cross has come back into the lineup, but she's been she, she struggled to get picked for the last couple of years. It just doesn't look like they've got that strength of, of bowling. Whereas you compare that to Australia, where Megan Shute's going to open. Elise Perry's been taking the new ball the last couple of years and, and doing really well. Um, Taylor Vlaminek's probably the quickest going round. She's you know young and untested, but but she's got proper pace and, and she can take a scrammer of a catch in, and in she's the outfield play. as well. And she's going to play she's as well. I mean, play. just judging by Meg Lanning's commentary to us a couple of days ago, Jeff, yeah. I'd be staggered if they don't play yep. the serious quick in order to sort of balance out the attack. Of course, yep. Shute and Perry and then the band of spinners and all-rounders yeah. they've got. But they, they want it out and out quick, and now they've got one. And, and, and that's what I'm saying, is that, is that then after that, they've got you know three or four very good spinners they can turn to, and, and then you can bring someone like Delissa Kaminz through the middle yeah. who can add that stability and be a seam bowling option, or Nick Carey as well. So it just feels like Australia have got a lot more reins to pull than England do. And, and the, the Catherine Brunt uh, thread will be interesting too, because I don't think she'll play that much in this series. Well, I think she'll try to play, because she's fearless and she's been magnificent for this side over a 15-year period, I think it is now. Yeah. Catherine Brunt, one of the greatest of all time in England cricket and has you know won pretty much everything you can win. But as you say, being held together with sticky tape knows that she can't get through the whole series. I'll have to manage her one way or the other. I'd be surprised if she gets up for the test. She'll certainly play the T20s. Mm. Her batting's become as important as her bowling in the last couple of years in the short yeah. form. Uh, but, yeah, who do they who do they place around her? Mm. And they don't have Freya Davies or Katie George in the squad either, who who are probably their, their equivalent 
of Lamnick. They've got a, they've got two quicker bowlers there who are younger. They've been tested a little bit at international level, but neither of those bowlers will play. So Brunt will need to do a job, but my question is how long will she be able to do the job for? Of course, there's no reason they can't chop and change with the squads. They're, they're on home soil. It's not a World Cup where they you know, mandate that 15 players must play and you've got to replace and so mm. on. They could do what they need to do, but I think that might be, whilst the strength having Brunt fit to play in the first match, I, I, I put it this way, I hope she doesn't break down. I hope so too, just for the sake of battlers everywhere. Yeah. One, one of the great battlers. The Barnsley Express. The Barnsley Express. We'll obviously have more extensive coverage of the series as we go through it. We want to get to this interview pretty quickly, so we'll just do a very quick little glimpse, a uh, glance, if you will, at Nerd Pledge. Uh, Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with our supporters on Patreon. That's a thing where you can financially support the podcast. If you feel like doing it, you can go to patreon.com slash the final word, and then you can uh, subscribe to uh, on a per episode basis or cap it on a monthly basis or whatever you would like to do. And some people, instead of saying $2, they might say $2.33, and then we've got to work out what $2.33 is. But uh, we've got a number here. I, I have to tender an apology to John McFeet because last week we had a couple of 143s from a couple of people. John McFeet has also popped in a 143 and I should have included him in the 143 palooza that we had last week, but I, I hadn't got that far down the list. But, uh, <laughs> 143 being Andrew Simon's uh, unbeaten century in the 2003 World Cup. There's a Watto 143 somewhere, isn't there, from it was, memory? It was the England one at the Rose Bowl the when, when he absolutely went crazy and, and was whacking sixes over the onside. There, there, were, there were others. There were about Steve five Smith's different things. Steve Smith's test, well, uh, uh, yeah, maiden test 100. Not, Sorry, didn't, yeah, didn't get a test on I mean. Dubu. Trust me, he did not get a test on Dubu. You know That's my sweet spot. I, I know, I know. I just mean it was, he, he debuted as a Test 100 maker. Uh, uh, no, I made that mistake in my copy the other week and I was mortified. Oh. I got into print when I described someone's maiden 100 as dead to boo 100. It was just a, a slip of the mind and I'm going to be kicking myself about it for the rest of the summer. Ouch. But uh, there's probably not anything else. Is, is there anything else? Not that I've looked at. Not that I've interrogated. You, you, a bit of a callback. <laughs> What is 143? Thank you, John. McFeet. Uh, that's spelt with a, a PH, not not like a guy who's... Uh, McFeet, if it was F-E-E-T, yeah. would be weird. It reminded me of the Dr. Nick Riviera. If it isn't my old friend, Mr. McCraig, with a leg for an arm and an arm for a leg. <laughs> um, I know that uh, we do get uh, Tim Cutler, who's uh, um, one of our friends from Associate Land, um, who runs a very good podcast uh, about emerging cricket. Mm. Uh, he, he enjoys it when we drop little Simpsons references in from, you know, the mid-90s. So that's one for you there, Tim. Oh, that's pretty much been my entire writing career. <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> the book that I wrote is 40% Simpsons references. <laughs> Had a long conversation with my editor about it. It's like, do you really need so many of these? And I was like, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. I absolutely do. I think I think I described in a column the other day, it was when Kawaja trying to bat at number six in the one-day team was like, I'm Simpson being told that he was a pilot, you know, being forced into the... Co- but I keep telling you I'm not a pilot. <laughs> and I keep telling you, you'll fly, boys. Crack me up. Um, <laughs> so there we are. <laughs> Nick Beaver has popped in 205, which I think we've had before too, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, we definitely have. I think it was Nick, that's Nick Tuvies, isn't it? That's Alan Border's highest score. 205, uh, I think from memory, Nick Tuvey had 205 back in the day. Who, who are we thanking today, though? Nick Beaver. Nick, so another Nick. Another Nick. Nick. It's just a Nick thing. It is. It's like those T-shirts you see on Facebook advertised. Oh, <laughs> it's just a Nick thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, who Alan, buys those? Alan, you know what I'm talking about? People called Nick, I guess. Yeah, but you know the sort of Facebook advertising no, I'm talking about? I don't. Your algorithm's healthier than mine, clearly. Okay. No, I, yeah. I, I just probably would be as a general rule. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more judicious about things I choose to search for. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> well, well, yes. <laughs> you know, when someone says, oh, I saw this hilarious thing, I, I will often vet that sentence and decide whether that's a good thing to type into my search bar, um, as opposed to you who just plows fearlessly ahead. And I admire that. What's incognito? <laughs> um, yes, so 205 Alan Borders top score is what we're going for, but there's, there's probably a few others. Let us know, Nick, if we're wrong or anybody else. Edward Farrer. 141, Edward Farrer. Hi, Edward Farrer. Thank you for uh, contributing to this project. Yeah. We're uh, all in this together, Edward. 141, that was just me trying to buy some time. 141, but I do mean it sincerely. Thank you for your contribution. But I am also now padding, as is the custom when I can't for the life of me think of what the, the number oh, There's one that should be very, very close to your heart, 141. Okay. When you say things like that, it just freaks me out. Uh, oh, yes, 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 141. Okay, that's uh, that's the first test that Dubai last year when Usman Khawaja played his wonder knock, which we had the great fortune of calling on. His 140 wonder knock. The 140 wonder knock, which you and I called the majority of in when we were on radio for 21 and a half hours. Oh, we, called, we called all of it. We didn't call the majority of it. We literally did the whole thing. Yeah, either you us. or I were doing every last ball, ball by mm. ball by bloody balls, we used to say we, back in the white line wireless days. Yeah. Salute to them. Um, it, it was. It was raw. It was emotional. Um, yes, it, it truly was. Our esophaguses were shredded by the end of it. I have this memory of that day. Like I don't remember a lot about that day, actually, because it was such hard graft. But getting to the end of it and us just like on the floor on our hands and knees picking up our video camera to do something on the yeah. ground, like just going and looking at each other like, did that just happen? Yeah. Uh, that was a good day. One of, one of the great good day. test escapes. And yeah. So fate can say, here it is. Here, here is one of the great test matches. Um, so Usman 141, that's quite nice. Uh, is there anything else on your spreadsheet there? Well, there are a lot of good 141s, actually, because um, Steve Smith's um, first, the first Ashes test at the Gabba in 2017, that was 141. Oh, that's an amazing 100, too. That was yep. the 100 where he was uh, beating the chest, uh, as mm. it happens. I know that's a bit of a... A, a bit of a callback to something. That we, call we, yeah, we, we had a, we had a, we mentioned some beating the chest on the Daily podcast today. Um, yeah, Dean Elgar made that also in Cape Town when he was um, making Australia feel very bad in the, 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 oh, yes. the twenty eighteen series when oh, Dean yes, Elgar yes, was yes. just enjoying punching the bruise every day of that series. Quite like, right. Uh, it's also Sean Marsh's debut hundred. Sean Marsh's hundred on debut. Yeah. You, you talk about. Bearing the fucking lead. <laughs> one for one is Sean Marsh's debut 100. In, in where that. This is clearly what it is. Edward, <laughs> if it isn't Sean Marsh's highest, uh, rather, debut score, then you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Then you've got it wrong. <laughs> Jeff Lemon is the co-host of this podcast. Yeah. True. In Pellicelli in uh, 2011. Yes. He looked the goods, didn't he, Sean he Marsh? He did. I watched it in the, uh, in the basement of and the that MCG. that was on debut. That was a debut 100. It was a debut 100. It was 100. both a made and a debut. debut. I watched it in the basement of the MCG, uh, <laughs> trying to maintain my record of every debut 100 in my lifetime. I've watched the ball where the 100 was raised, um, which included um, I was at a library uh, at the AEU in Kew when Michael Clark was on about 91, and I got in my right. car and spent bed through to try and find a pub to leap out of when he was on 97 to see Clarks. <laughs> but when it came to Sean Marsh's, I was at the footy uh, watching uh, West Coast play Collingwood in a, in a qualifying final with my mate Brett Collette and th- realised that this was going to happen. So we sprinted down to the basement and, and watched it happen there in one of those one of those bars <laughs> or you know tabs or whatever it was. So I, I remember at the time thinking, gee, it's taken a long time to pick Sean Marsh in 
test cricket. I, I remember watching him in his first class debut a decade ago. I wonder why it took so long for him to get there. I hope he gets a proper opportunity. Yep. <laughs> well, in that decade, he, he made it, he made six shield hundreds in that decade. Yeah, so how could you yeah, not pick him? He, he, he got an opportunity thereafter, though. He made up for lost time. <laughs> it, it's an auspicious... Well, all selectors did at least. Auspicious number 141. Shahid Afridi made 141 in Chennai against India um, uh, off a very unshade Afridi like 191 balls. He only, what year was that? He only hit three sixes in that hundred, so... <laughs> Um, when, it was, was in 1999. Oh, right. Okay, that series. Okay. okay. He, he was partying like it was. Um, and, and lots of good names there. Sid Barnes, Everton Weeks, Keith Miller, Bill Woodfull, all made 141. Which Miller 100 is it? It is uh, against England at Adelaide in 47. Ah, right. So, uh, okay, right. So, the... Uh, the um, that's the... that's the Well, they're, they're the first formal test matches after the war, aren't they? So. Mm. After the non-informal victory test. informal tests. victory test, that's Gordon right. Gordon Greenwich. Which I wanted to go back and look at. One. Did I tell you about the, the little fact that I found about the victory test the other week? I don't think I did. No. I was reading about the day that the... Uh, music victory, died. The, the day the music died, the day the music died. The day that Winston Churchill called the election in 1945, so just after mm. um, victory in Europe... So Churchill's calling election, uh, Australia win an incredible, the incredible victory test at Lords, which goes to the to the final session, and they win by like nine runs or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I worked out it must have been roughly the same time of day as well, based on the 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 the, uh, the book I was reading this in. So two, you know, two different worlds, but mm. two things that are quite I'm quite interested in were happening at the same time. So I thought going back and documenting what happened that day might be a good article one day. So commission me someone yeah. to write that piece. Find, and I will find five other worlds, and then you can do a Neil Finn when your seven worlds collide. Yeah, exactly. Dust from a distant sun will shower over everyone. I think it's time to go to our interview. We'll do more nerd pledge in the next couple of weeks. We'll we'll have another nerd pledge quiz episode, hopefully pretty soon. We're lining up uh, some we guests are. for that. We are going to do nerd pledge quiz. That's how we're going to do this. So we're doing an interview today. Next week, we will do a, an issues-based episode. We're never short of content when we talk about issues. We always say, yeah, we'll do an issues episode. It might take half an hour. It'll be a short one for the listeners. We won't bombard them. They're always an hour yeah, and a half, always long. On that one, we will do Nerd Pledge Quiz. And if I'm going to hold myself to account by saying, with Andy Zaltzman, the comedian and BBC uh, Test Match Special Scorer, he said to me the other day that he would do it with us mm-hmm. uh, and, and he will be formidable. We've just got to find a, a time when he's not dead because he's he's done, I reckon he's had two days off in this World Cup. He's been at a game every day. He's travelled yeah. to another game and then done the next one. He's We remarkable. sat next to each other on a couple of long train trips up north on the way back and we both sort of sat there um, ashen-faced and broken and kind of acknowledged that we're, we're not doing this perhaps the right way but we're certainly enjoying our, our journey. Just staring into space. I, I feel quite cheerful. We've, we've, had, we've done a lot of hard work but, uh, but it's feeling good. Yeah, we're on the tail end, aren't we? Yeah, we're, we're on the down the downwind but, it, but it's, it's been fun the whole way through. Yeah. Um, so thanks to everyone on Nerd Pledge. If we haven't got to your number, we will get do it very soon and if you want to sign up to the Patreon you can help us keep doing the podcast which is nice because everybody throws a coin in the jar and then we can actually make the thing work and so we, we very much appreciate that. It's patron.com slash the final word that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N for some reason, I don't know why, ask Silicon Valley. And lastly before we wrap up section one, finalwordcricket.com it's our website. We, we have do, a website. we have one. We have a URL, Yep. it's finalwordcricket.com because we're so blisteringly busy at the moment we probably haven't done the the spade work which we we need to at this stage but bookmark it it's where you it's where you'll find jeff's words my words our photos our, our podcasts uh, our videos it's going to become a, a hub of sorts and and we're, and we're really proud of it. it looks fantastic so thanks as always to to jay mueller and bad producer productions for, for making it look really flash 
It's time to get into the next part of the podcast. Uh, let's take a quick musical interlude, a journey into the <laughs> minds and hearts before we hear from Natalie Germanis. Jeff, 1932 was the summer of Bodyline and the Australians needed courage to face Harold Larwood. And we're still talking about it 80-whatever <laughs> years later. We're not mad. We're really not mad. We've never been mad. Don't know what it's like to be mad. No, don't have a chip on our shoulder on the bed at all. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, that same year, another young Australian showed courage by mortgaging his home during the Great Depression to start a property company, which must have been quite the ballsy move. Um, yeah, I mean, initially I was like, uh, meh, about that line, and then I thought, actually, that is kind of terrifying. Um, <laughs> probably worse than playing cricket. <laughs> Albert Victor Jennings was his name. He wanted to provide affordable and quality housing in areas where people actually wanted to live. AV Jennings, the company that bears his name, is still doing that today. It's very much a name of the times, isn't it? You wouldn't you wouldn't meet a lot of Albert Victors kicking around. Actually, you might. Maybe it, maybe it's like due for a hipster resurgence, and there'll I was going to say, I reckon there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of young boys out there, well, maybe young girls for that matter, called Albert Victor. Uh, I, I, know an, I know a young Albie, so maybe these names are coming back into fashion. AV Jennings is certainly in fashion, and that's why they're one of the most trusted names in Australian housing. Oh, what a segue. <laughs> He's so smooth. <laughs> Seamless. He's like butter. <laughs> so go to avjennings.com.au. Go there now and check them out for yourself. I mean, if you need a house. Probably don't go there if you don't need a house. Like, if you're but sweet if for you houses. Do. No, if you're sweet for houses, you're probably good. But, but if you need one. Have a look. This is the Final Word podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We are at Lords. It's a lovely, cloudy London afternoon. And our guest today is someone who started covering professional cricket in, back in 2005, has got through 85 test matches and 86 is on the horizon and how many hundreds of one-day internationals and T20s we could not possibly count and neither could she. Natalie Germanis, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Great to be with you guys. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while. We sort of approached it last year and we didn't get around to it because, you know, things came up and, and all of the rest of it. But we started working with you at the Women's World Cup in 2017 and it was fascinating to find out how far back your broadcasting history went, you know, when you just casually dropped into conversation uh, commentating on the 434 slash 438 game between South Africa and Australia, which, and that was the first time I'd realised that the South Africans call it something else. <laughs> we, we, of course, use the Australian score, but uh, that's probably not the most important score in the game. You guys always do it the other way around, though, don't you? <laughs> Instead of that, you, you do also one for 38. We how we're brought up. One, how, yeah. we, how, we, how we were schooled in the game. We say you do it the wrong way, but anyway. Well, we think, as Australians, growing up, we, we are taught that the English way is the wrong way when, of course, we're the outlier, <laughs> yeah. which might say more about the way we're built. But anyway, that's yeah, a whole different true. conversation. Resentfully insisting the rest of the world is wrong. <laughs> Australia, get a Southern Cross tattoo. But it, it's actually a particularly good time to talk to you now rather than a year ago because there was this really interesting uh, sort of contrast or, or conflict, I suppose. In Australia over the last summer, suddenly there were women on all of the major broadcasting teams. Now, this wasn't something that had happened much before. Alison Mitchell had done a bit on the ABC, on ABC Radio, but then she was doing ABC and leading Channel 7's TV coverage. Isha Gu was leading the Foxtel coverage. Mel Jones was on SEN. All, all of the platforms had suddenly had women broadcasters, and it was being treated as though it was this new thing. Ooh, oh, wow, there are, there are ladies doing the men's <laughs> cricket. How, how quaint, how progressive. And then you look at South Africa and think, well, you've been doing it for... 13 years. Cass Naidu started a couple of years before you, so she's been 15 years in the game, and it's just 
completely regulation over there. That's just how things are. Um, so I was interested in your perspective on that that side of things, this idea that, that some new barrier has been breached when actually it's been that way for a long time. Yeah, and Donna Simmons also of the West Indies did it even before mm. Cass as well. So they had broken that ground very early on. Alison Mitchell broke her ground here in England about the same time as I did as well. Cass had started a couple of years before me. And when I saw, it was always one of my sort of objectives was to do this. Um, I wanted to play, but women's cricket at the time was, to be quite honest, was in a mess in South Africa. It was difficult to get into, and it certainly obviously wasn't anywhere near where it is now um, but I saw Cass Nidy on a, the mag, on, on, a, on the magazine the front of a magazine I think it was and I said oh there's a woman doing what I want to be doing so it's actually it's something that's possible and I think back then initially people were looking at it and saying oh okay this is a novelty this is something a little bit different but now it's part of everyday life. You have We have women on the crew and we bring new women in. Mignon Dupria, for example, who was obviously the former women's captain, we've brought in at commentary level and it hasn't been an issue. It's been seamless to bring her into to the men's coverage. You mentioned wanting to play growing up. What is your first memories of the game, whether it's as a player or the way you consumed it on the radio or the television? Very first one would have been probably back to South Africa's test match when they came back into we came back from yep. readmission. Also watching the South Africa against the, watching South Africa against the West Indies in particular that one single test match which they nearly won and then obviously Kirtley Ambrose and Courtney mm. Walsh took South Africa apart on that final day with just brilliant bowling that is one of my early memories but what, that was watching it on TV listening on radio would have been the 1992 Men's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand we were at school. And it was that was sort of the time difference that allowed it to, a lot of the day night games to go through our school morning. Mm-hmm. So we sat with our Walkmans. Do you remember those <laughs> Walkmans? Yeah, snuck many a walk room, Walkman into a, into the back of a, a high school class. I did so. all the time, all the time. And we would put the headphone up a jersey. It was in the middle of summer, and we were wearing jerseys. Put the headphone up the jersey and sit with the headphone in our ear and a hand over our ear <laughs> to conceal the fact that we were listening to the cricket and we do this through all our classes because we wanted to know what was going on and obviously South Africa coming back into a World Cup their first ever it was a special occasion they played so well they had incredible games Jonty Rhodes obviously lit things on fire with an amazing run out and his wonderful fielding it was so exciting it was such an exciting time and at school I didn't want to miss any of that so we were listening <laughs> during class I was doing the same thing at um First year uni, I reckon, listening to the, the Lexman and Dravid partnership in 2001 with the Walkman earbud in. That was university, though. No one cared. You, you do <laughs> Yeah, it's why I've always got a relationship with Daniel Vittori because his first test match in Australia was in, well, probably would have been my first year of high school. I listened to the whole day on the radio, it's like right. s- hiding the earpiece in. So I think it's a nice thing amongst people that love cricket on the radio. We all kind of, at one point or another, found a way to, to do it against the rules at so, school. But yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't that sort of British boarding school thing where once in a while they would say, well, you know, Peter May is batting very well. We're going to listen to the BBC in class. Every now and again we would have an announcement if South Africa had won. I can remember when they beat India I think it was, there was an announcement to say South Africa's beaten India but it was it was so sparse, it wasn't all the time and, and we kind of wanted to know what was going on all the time um, but I do remember, I think it was then, it was starting to get sort of the middle of the tournament when South Africa had the chances of possibly making the semi-final and mm-hmm. obviously something really big. So I think when the, I think I seem to remember that announcement somewhere along the line that we had. 
So you had a firm idea that you wanted to play, but, and, but it wasn't possible, basically. What, what did you want to do? How, how did that come about? That you, you visualize, What did you visualise yourself doing as a South African player? So if, when I was about, I'd probably say about 13, the idea of playing sort of got into my head. Um, the 92 World Cup was, was sort of just before that. I was about 11, I think, when the 92 World Cup happened. And a couple of years after that, I started thinking, hang on, I know women do play this game. We had a six-a-side tournament at school, which uh, sort of got me going with the idea of possibly playing. I played in my backyard with my brothers. We had a net in the backyard eventually. After a few years of playing, my, my dad sets it up for us, so we were very lucky. And then I said to myself, you know what, actually, this is something I'd like to do. I didn't think of it from a, a job point of view necessarily. I wasn't thinking, you know, oh, I'll make money out of it or I'll make a career mm. out of it necessarily. But it was just because I loved it. I just loved the game so much. And women's cricket back then wasn't very specific. So you had generally in a school team, you probably have three or four people that can play a little bit and they do everything. They bowl, they bat, they, they field in the most important positions. The rest kind of make up the numbers and that, that was a reality of where it's we were. It's a familiar basically. tale. Yeah, <laughs> it was a reality, unfortunately. And that's, that made it even more tough, obviously, to get the women involved because nobody wants to sit in an outfield going from fine leg to, to third, up and down, up and down and doing absolutely nothing else. How, how on earth are you going to get people interested in the game? It's I don't mind that because then I can't embarrass myself, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so upon realising that you weren't going to go off and, and play, I guess, the next level of cricket, did you then make the assessment that I'd love to broadcast the game and, and that's why you went and studied it at tertiary level accordingly? Was it always with cricket front of mind? Yeah, cricket was always front of mind. Um, I played a lot of netball. I loved my volleyball as well. Volleyball came a little bit later, though, in my life when I decided I wasn't going to be able to sort of play cricket. I thought, well, I still want to play sports, so I went on to volleyball. But I think I was in college when this sort of idea came to my head of maybe doing broadcasting. I was studying sports management. Yeah, studying sports management as a diploma. And I went we went on a tour of the Wanderers. My lecturer for one of the subjects was the, the, the fitness trainer at the Wanderers, Jeff Lunsky. He took us on a tour of the Wanderers. We went into the dressing rooms. We went into the, the stands. We went into some of the admin offices. They showed us around. They took us on the field. And they took us to the commentary boxes. And I sat there and I was just like looking out from the commentary box on the field. And I said to myself, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. This feels right. Everybody else kind of left and I kind of lingered for a little bit longer. And I was looking at this and I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, I don't know. I just had like, if you want to call it a light bulb moment, it sounds so cliche, but it, maybe that's pretty much what it was, I guess. A moment of clarity. But uh, it's quite okay, beautiful. Maybe we can call it that. Maybe a moment of insanity. I'm not sure. But, but to be able to remember that and to come back to that one moment is, is, a, is a really special thing, actually. It's, it's very special that I think, when I think about it now, obviously at the time I was kind of thinking, yeah, this is something I want to do. And anybody I told kind of laughed at me and said, yeah, that's never going to happen. It's, you know, you're being silly, get a real job kind of thing. You know, make sure you make some money. My father also, he's the same thing. He was like, no, no, you need a real job, please. You know, don't make me start worrying that you're not going to make any money and you're not going to be self-sufficient. And I think about it now, though, it's, yeah, it's probably, it's, it's quite special. And it's lovely that you get to do it, I mean, on a daily basis. We're sitting in a commentary box at Lords right now, looking out across towards the pavilion on the pitch they'll be using tomorrow and so forth. It's, it, you get that, that thrill all the time. That's one of the great things about radio commentary, isn't it? When I walked into Lords for the first time, it was just to watch South Africa play against Australia. It was a test day. It was back in 2017. I came for the day just to watch. 
Then the next time after that as a broadcaster was the Women's World Cup final in 2017. Mm. And I can remember looking behind us where there was a queue of people coming in. And I had to pinch myself because I was saying, well, not just at the Women's World Cup final, which had 26,500 people and 180 million watching. It, it, it was, um, yeah, as a broadcaster, is what I wanted to do, sitting in, in the commentary box, just looking at it. There were times when I think I, I must have looked, I had a sort of a glazed look <laughs> over my face to like, because I'm thinking, um, yeah, this is, I've wanted yeah. to do this for so long. Going back to um, 2005, when you first get on this amazing roller coaster, it was a rapid jump from wanting to do it to doing it. Can you explain, I guess, uh, how you, you got recruited uh, and how suddenly you were thrown into the frying pan? It was very rapid. Um, so my lecturer, who I spoke about, Jeff Lunsky, who took us on the tour, I eventually spoke to him at the end of that diploma and I said to him, do you know anybody that I can maybe speak to at the SABC possibly or somebody who can you know, get me in line with someone for commentary? So I said, yeah, don't worry, we've got Lawrence Mahatlani who, I don't know if you guys have met him, you, Jeff, you might have met him, he was a commentator at one stage, he's now the SA Under-19 coach, he'd done commentary for a long time and he said, yes, uh, get on to Lawrence, he, I'll give you his number, you can speak to him. I phoned him, he gave me the producer's number at SABC had a chat with him, Don van der Bach, and he said to me, um, we are looking for women. This is great timing. We've got the Women's uh, World Cup semifinals coming up in South Africa. We are covering it for SABC in Potchefstroom. And I thought, okay, great. He said, come in, we'll have a chat. We'll do a little impromptu sort of interview at the ground at the Wanderers with Zimbabwe being there. And um, he said to me at the, on that day when I, when I went in, please send a demo tape in and we'll you know, maybe chat a little bit further. Before I could send the demo tape in, um, I ended up with a phone call to say, your contract's ready, please come and sign it. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then they said, you'll be working on the 5th of April, which is the first semi-final. I said, oh, that's my birthday. What a great birthday present. So I just happened to start <laughs> on my birthday. And and that's basically how it was. We drove to Potchefstroom, did the work that day, went back, did the next semi-final a couple of days later. Right, that's the Australia-England semi-final, the first yeah, one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, which is a really huge game. So I, I was, yeah, because England, England ended, up, ended up losing yeah. in the semi-final which was obviously a little bit surprising to everybody. And then you had New Zealand, India, and eventually India ended up losing in that, that other semi-final. In a nice callback, that's the only time that two of your broadcasters, Mel Jones and Isha Guha, played against each other in an international, the yeah. 2005 yeah, yeah. semi-final in South <laughs> yeah. Africa. It's, of that it's World incredible. Cup. That. And Ali Mitchell was at that game as well, oh, was she? doing reporting. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah, she was so all also of you were there in different capacities. Charlotte Edwards was also playing. Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the Young Avengers kind of <laughs> yeah, origin yeah. story, you know, the teenage versions of Batman and <laughs> I was asking MJ about it recently and she says she remembers them. So there was a, I think it was a washout day maybe earlier in the tournament. Yes. And, the, and, and they were eyeing each other off across the field. They didn't know who each other were because in that era, they seldom played against each other. An occasional bilateral series. And there'd be no video, no, no broadcast. Yeah. So Nothing. she's like, oh, that must be that young bowler, Isha Guha. And, you know, it's kind of a nice <laughs> thing to think that now that yeah. you've all had these amazing career trajectories. And then you go into the commentary box and, I mean, before long, you're sitting next to someone like Neil Manthorpe who... He was my first person that I worked with. Right. Actually. So someone who's a giant, a giant of the industry, you know, been around for a gazillion years without wanting to cast aspersions about how old manners might be. <laughs> but, you know, someone who's very experienced and, and accomplished as a broadcaster. And there you are sitting next to him. What was it like, you know, being there on day one with Manthorpe? I was, I was lucky that the producer, first of all, was, was really kind in the sense he said to me, I'm going to give a 10 minute stint with Neil Manthorpe who is obviously one of our best I mean Neil's done pretty much every game South Africa's played since readmission so mm. he's, he's incredible and even at the time that had already been 13 odd years or whatever it was and he, my producer said I'm going to give you just a 10 minute stint with, with, with Neil Manthorpe and um, 
I said, okay, great. Obviously, I was very nervous. I do not remember a word that I said in that first stint. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what I said. So you were summarizing. I was summarizing, yeah. So he was doing the lead and he, he has this natural way of making you feel comfortable. And that is an art in itself, never mind yep. the commentary side of it. Because when you are so nervous, it's very difficult to get people to sort of relax. I mean, I've had to try and do that with people. It's very, yep. very difficult because you don't know that person. You don't know that person, how, how they, what they like. You don't know what their strengths are. You've got no idea. He had this very natural way of making me feel comfortable, even though I have absolutely no idea what I said that day. <laughs> I do remember making a little, a, a bit of what actually was a bit of a crude joke, but I think I was trying to relax myself. I might have to tell you that maybe off, off, the, off the podcast. I <laughs> know <laughs> oh, this podcast is a very, uh, it's a very open forum. Our listeners don't mind. It just depends whether you're happy. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's, so it's good enough for South African radio. But, but, <laughs> it was but one too. of those moments where afterwards I was like, did I really say that? <laughs> well, yeah. I had one of those moments with uh, with Jim last year with when when Tionis de Brain and Quentin de Kock were batting together at uh <laughs> it, it, it ended up all right in the end. Yeah, he, he doesn't miss an opportunity with Jim with, with those kind of uh, own yeah. goals or tapping goals. Uh, the, the technical side of radio calling that I wanted to uh, ask you about as well. So very quickly you go from being a student to getting this amazing opportunity, having a contract presented to you. I mean, what Jeff and I would do to get such an opportunity in our, in our career some years on. It's a, it's a great story, great tale. You're on air. But the technical side of radio calling isn't, I mean, it's not rocket surgery, but but it's not easy either. There are some there are some parts to that, uh, the mechanics of it, which don't come naturally. You need to learn how to do it and, and so on. Yeah. What was that like for you? Was it mostly by osmosis, having listened to radio growing up, or did you have to go through a, a fairly sort of exhaustive schooling process? Some of it was sort of listening and picking up a few things, but the most of it actually came from Glenn Mitchell. He worked at the ABC for oh, years right. and years. He yeah, was my yeah. mentor for years. Wonderful. Yeah, he, he was fantastic because I met him in 2009, it would have been, when they came over to yep. South Africa. They had Jim Maxwell and Glenn Mitchell and a couple of other guys working with them doing the South African, doing ABC's own coverage in South Africa. And um, he, he, he heard some of my stuff that I'd done and I was just moving into lead at the time. And he was like, well, do you want some help? And I'm like... Of course, like especially from somebody like him who's done so many sports as well, and I think sure. yeah. that's important yep. is knowing that the basics of commentary are very similar for all sorts of sports, but it's nice to have that grounding within other sports as well. And he he gave me the most incredible tips. He would listen in on my commentary and then help me straight afterwards, which I think was the most important part because nothing festered. You didn't develop bad habits, which is very hard to change, obviously, especially while you're on air. And he, he helped me with the basics of commentary. And, he, and one of the most important things he said to me was, you, must always, you copy substance but not style. So you have your own style, you have your own personality, but the basics of commentary, the technicalities of commentary, that you copy because there are certain things you should do. Speaking in prison, Tense, for example, speaking, keeping up with the action, don't miss a delivery. There's, there's basic things that, as a listener, you probably don't really pick it up necessarily, but as a commentator, they're pretty important. You're on radio, describe the action, give the score, make sure mm. people know what the score is because it's so easy to get wrapped up in it. And I think we get tired of hearing ourselves say the score over and over, but 
people need to know what's going yeah. on. Well, there's always someone who's just tuned in. Between yeah. every ball, there's a new listener to the exactly. broadcast. Absolutely. And, and it can become so easy just to – you assume you know that Coley's on 80, so when he gets a single, of course, he's 81, but someone else doesn't yeah. know What that. over are they in? What's the target? Yeah. Um, it, what happened before? You've got three wickets falling, but who are the three that were out? What happened? I mean, could be anything controversial. What has happened? Yeah, and people, people are furious when they, when they don't get the score enough as well. I remember when, when Jeff and I were doing some work with one of the broadcasters a few years ago in their social media accounts and the amount of responses to tweets which were basically, why don't you read the score so much? And to our way of thinking, the score was being read out plenty, but, yeah. but it's a different experience when you're down the other end of the, other end of the radio. Yeah, I mean, the basic thing that, that Glenn said to me was, update the score at the beginning of an over, end of an over, middle of an over, and a score change. That's how mm. often you should really be mm. updating the score. That's a lot. I mean, I get tired of saying it. You, know, <laughs> you just hear it echoing in your head, but it is important. Well, especially when it doesn't change, when, when someone's betting <laughs> out for a draw. But, um, it's a really nice overlap because Glenn Mitchell was um, very important with us as well. He, he did just sort of as a, a fun project, he worked with us on, on White Line Wireless yeah. for a bit, which was a, a sort of informal commentary service, shall we say. And, and he, one way of describing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but he would patch in, he'd Skype in down the line from Perth and, and do commentary with us remotely and, and give us tips and give us feedback on each session. And, you know, that was the first commentary that I was doing was, was with Glenn as well. So. Yeah, he, he made a big difference to, to, to me. I mean, if it wasn't for him, I don't think that I would have made the strides that I've made. So was there pushback initially? I mean, you said Cass had kind of laid, done the first push, I guess, and, and the fact that you were able to see her on a magazine and then, yeah. and then work with her, that's kind of lovely in itself. And, yeah. and, and she's still there being the sort of calming influence to the whole commentary. You know, she is. <laughs> she, she sort of manages the whole thing. But, you know, was there resistance initially to, to having women broadcast? Yeah, I, th- cricket I think so, especially from the, the ex-players within within the commentary boxes. And I, and I can understand that because you have somebody walking in as, as basically a journalist. What do they know about the game? How much work have they done behind the scenes? Have they ever played the game? And I can understand that. It's a natural reaction. And we sort of, as human beings, we gravitate to what we know and people that we know. And that's just that's just part of life. Um, and I think in many ways the, the, the ex-players will gravitate towards people, one, that they played with, two, that have just generally played the game you, you can't help that so I think in the beginning there was definitely a sort of a pushback as to like okay hang on what is this woman doing here mm. eventually after a few years of, of hard graft and, and doing a lot of research um, I mean you guys know what it's like research is so important and it's tedious and tiring but it's it's really really important and I think after doing that you eventually start to get a little bit of respect working for international broadcasters like the BBC who have been absolutely they're just so fantastic um, I love working with them they've they've been amazing to me and, and given me opportunities I think eventually you know you get the you get you get respect so that's something I think about when I think about watching you commentate and that and working with you is that you keep meticulous handwritten notes. And that's <laughs> Not neat handwritten notes. <laughs> still, but but they are, there, there are a lot of notes. Yes. And, and research is perhaps the one thing that people don't see uh, or hear, rather. It's that classic sort of duck underneath the water, isn't it? Like you've got to give the impression of calm and cool, but you, you, you're kicking really hard because you want to absorb as much information as you can and relay it to the listener in a way that's digestible and interesting and stuff they don't know, really, is what it comes down to. So your handwritten process is not one that we see replicated across the world most people now just punch punch something up on their laptop and maybe they don't do anything at all that's been a criticism of Jeff and mine of some commentators is that they they rock up and and do the job 
job. Um, some ex-players fall into this category and rely on the fact that they have a deep history in the game, but perhaps not a deep history in broadcasting. But you're the polar opposite of that. So talk us through, if you're doing a, a game in this World Cup, and let's assume it's a non-South African game, mm-hmm. give us a sense of how much work you will do before you step behind the mic. Okay, so I'm actually doing uh, New Zealand versus uh, Pakistan on Wednesday in Birmingham. So that will be my one yep. non-South African game. So what I did before the World Cup even started when I was back at home I had a few weeks to myself which is always helpful because you know what it's like you're really busy it's tough to get the research in sometimes I sat and went through every team and made a list of everyone who's in the squad made a list of the averages whether it be bowling batting or both obviously sometimes their strike rates their economy rates etc all the basic stats then I went made a list of their debut what they did on their debut what if the highest score is 150, who they made it against, when it was, did the team win, etc. And then a, a little bit of a backstory on each of them, in particular the players you obviously don't know. Um, mm. Gobadi Nayib, he was an amateur uh, bodybuilder at yep. one stage. So things like that, make yep. notes of the, the little story, something that's hopefully interesting to people um, and make sort of notes on, 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 on their backstory and how they came into cricket, things that people might not know. Obviously we don't know everything about all the players. It's hard to get information sometimes on some of the players new players as well it's very tough or, to or there's that. the risk that it's the same one piece of information yes, like exactly. oh peter siddle eats bananas and then suddenly that's all you hear 483 times for the rest of the summer exactly and that those are the type of things that come from generally a, a normal profile page but if you go back and, and read articles that were written i find those are some of the best bits of information so i'll just google the player go th- and go through articles if there's someone i'm very unsure of there's a few questions that i have i'll read through all of their articles things yeah. that were written on them to give me information you'll again have a lot of the same information running through some of the same narratives but you will find that are really good because there are some fantastic written journalists out there who do research as well and they do love little stories podcasts those type of things you find out great things from podcasts but, but also those journalists are often in the press box on the yeah. day and so you can go and pick their brains and get little bits exactly. of information from you know you know the pakistan pack is traveling with that team so you yeah. you go and hit up a couple of people and say what else do i need to know yeah. about or or whatever it might exactly. be pronunciation is another thing that yeah. i like checking on Chris. and which you're big on as well I've, i mean your your pronunciation uh, has been something that we've we've noticed over the journey especially with south african players and i think that informs I think we take the lead from you in that the, the way you choose to pronounce yeah. names I, I will make a point of and, and make sure I follow suit I think what's great nowadays is that the, the technology helps so much I mean if, if if I can't find someone who might be able to give me pronunciation I'll go through Google Translate for example yeah. that helps a little bit it's not always right because yeah. um, obviously there's different dialects and that type of thing but voice notes best thing ever invented because Mel Jones started this thing she's great with it she will go to the media liaisons and ask them just to read out the list of the squad and send the voice notes <laughs> on to whoever wants them who is ever who is ever interested in particular with the women's game because there are some teams you don't know much yep. about and Sri Lanka for example they change their squad so often you don't know mm. the players you don't know how to pronounce them so Go and get voice notes and send it off. And I'm thieving that idea. We're definitely going to start it's, doing it's that. Great. That's it's great. It's such a good thing. And you keep it. It's such an easy thing to keep as well. Keep a record of it. And you just listen to it. And at least try. You may not get it right, but at least try. Is that something that is particularly pressing given um, the, the way that society works in South Africa? So I noticed working over there, I, I was working with you in 2018 on radio and TV for SABC covering that test series. And it's very noticeable that SABC has a wide range of callers. They have callers from all kinds of uh, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, 
genders, mm. the whole lot. There's, there's, you know, the representation's amazing. But you have to make sure, you know, okay, this is a Corsair name, so this is how I pronounce this name when this commentator joins me on air. This is a, a Pakistan Muslim name, so I've got to make sure I get that one right. And it's important to do. It's a, a matter of respect to get people's names right. But is that something that you're, you know, does that society make you much more conscious of that? I think it does. I think, I mean, everybody knows South Africa's history. It's a very colourful history and it's a, certainly a very sad history as well. But we are in this amazing, if you want to call it a melting pot, whatever you want to call it, of cultures where we are exposed to all sorts of different cultures, which is actually a great thing. I think it's fantastic because you learn about other people's religions, their way of life, their, their, their ideas, and also things like how do you pronounce the name? I mean, Nuleki Sabo, for example, he's fantastic. I, I love working with him. He's been working with SABC just about as long. As, I think it's actually the same mm. as what, I, what I've been working with. And he can do any sport. He can do rugby, football. He can do, he can do anything. I always phone him as well if I'm going to be doing a game where I don't know how to pronounce the name, for example, especially with football. And he, he, he also, again, sends a voice note and says, there you go. This is how you pronounce it. I mean, Andila Pechlukwayo, for example, I've still got the voice note on, on my phone to show because people ask me all the time, like, yeah. how do you Pronounce it. So I just, there you go. That's a voice note. You want me to send it to you? There you go. There's been a great it. education around his name through this week up, I think. So <laughs> that, that has everyone's been the one got name. It. Everyone's worked really hard. I, 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 I think agree. so. Yeah, yeah. To try to get the, you know, the, the sort of, there's it's, that half aspirated H um, yeah. at the end of the first syllable. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about when you've got that sort of diversity. And looking at it from the outside, we can have this slightly idealistic view of saying, oh, isn't it great they've had women in commentary for 15 years in South Africa? It's not exactly necessarily the case that South Africa is a perfectly progressive, um, you know, gender equal paradise either. So I wanted to, to get your assessment of that, of, of what the reality of, of things is on the ground. Yeah, I think from if you look, f just, just look at the women's uh, national team, for example, they have made massive strides. I don't doubt that for, for a second. And Cricket South Africa are attempting to obviously make it as equal as possible. But they're nowhere near where I believe they should be and what the girls deserve either. Um, and that's just sort of a microcosm for where we're kind of at. Um, there are strides being made, but is it enough? No, it's not enough. I don't think women are getting necessarily what they 100% deserve but we are on a wonderful journey at the moment I mean Cass Snyder for example her G-sport that she started many years ago now I think she started it was 2006-2007 which is an, a website that showcases women's sport for example those are the type of things we need and we need more of them and it's, it's a wonderful project where the government has got involved in it as well and endorsed it and she's done a lot of the hard work behind the scenes I'd love it to be a case of well it's just kind of the norm but it really isn't the norm it's still something that's sort of an extra like yeah. you've got that woman's website yep. and those type of things you want it to kind of be the norm but it's right. not and, and more broadly socially as well I, yeah. I remember when when Candace Warner was getting abused by the crowds uh, speaking to it with some of the South African journalists and the line that stayed with me one of them said uh, there's no me too movement in South mm. Africa yes. it was a, a real sense that that things are a long way behind on that front. Yeah, they are a long way behind on that front. And it's sad to say, um, because then it's again a cultural type of thing. And I think when people are also looking from the outside, they might question certain things. Like, for example, a Zulu man can marry as many women as he wants, as long as he can look after them. But there's nothing wrong with that, essentially, if, obviously, that is your culture. You may not subscribe to it as long as the women are being treated right and they're being looked after. That is within their culture. It works within their culture. But 
Um, there's other situations where, example, the, the amount of women abuse, child abuse, rape, all those type of things are pretty alarming within South Africa. I don't know what the stats are, but they are pretty alarming within South Africa. And a lot of that goes down to respecting women. To tie a couple of these threads together, um, do you think that partially the volume of research you do and how prepared you are is governed by the fact that as a woman you'll be held to a much higher standard and if you were to fall short of the mark that you've set that that, that, that it would be a very unsympathetic response you would get? Yeah, Ebony Rainford Brent introduced me to a phrase that I'm never going to forget, and I'm sure it's something I'm going to use, imposter syndrome. Um, yep. I've never really heard that phrase used really too often in South Africa, but that's certainly what you feel. You feel like someone's going to turn around and go, what are you doing here? You don't belong here and kick you out kind of thing. So you have to make sure your re research is 100% up to date. You can't mess up a stat. You can't make a mistake. And I can't help it that when you do make a mistake, it kind of echoes in Percolates. your head. <laughs> yeah. And this is a probably, this might be an area where the three of us have more in common um, than perhaps Ebony and Isha and Mel Jones and others who have played international cricket. Yeah. Because whilst they are accomplished broadcasters, they have that body of work before they entered the sport. Those who are broadcasters first and do the commentary but don't have a professional playing background, it is an interesting cohort that we operate in because there has been a tendency, especially on television, and we'll come to the distinctions there in a minute, but broadly in television, to use past players um, as the commentator mm. as well. And you, you've talked about that before, that your personal view is that there is a, there is a nice balance between yes. broadcasters and, and professional analysts. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that, that line to draw is quite important. You, you have to have past players. You have to have someone who has faced 180 or 100, listen to me, 150 kilometers an hour. You have to, you have yep. to actually have that. But you also need a broadcaster who's going to come in and give a slightly different view, whether it be as the story that is trying to be told, the broadcaster will bring that in whether it's a technical point of view as well, because there are technicalities to both TV and radio. Yeah. So those things, I find them, I find them very important. Um, I think you need that balance. But there's no doubt that when you are in just as a broadcaster and you haven't got the professional playing background, you do feel that sort of anxiety of like, oh, someone's going to turn around and say, you don't belong. Yeah. Or you might not get a body of work that you, you feel that you could actually be really good for, those type of things. And, and it's a reality we face pretty much every day. And interestingly, with... with from an Australian perspective, last year when there was two broadcasters, not one, Fox Sports elected to stick with, I think, exclusively former players. There might have been one or two. Mark Howard. But Mark Howard is the, the exception, yep. spot on. But Channel 7 elected to have their play-by-play their -play calls, so to speak, being led by Tim Lane and Alison Mitchell, who mm. haven't played professional cricket. There yeah. were some former players who did play-by-play -play for them as well. But it is interesting that even philosophically, there that is a debate that's ongoing. Mm. But radio seems to be you know, free of that for the most part. There is still a role. Uh, it's rare that you see a former player be in the spot as a caller. Isha's one that stands out. Of course, Jonathan Agnew's another, but mostly it is that divide you're talking about, that healthy balance. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I think I love about radio as well, is that it's a, it's a medium that I find as fair as possible. You don't also have to be in a former international player necessarily. They'll use domestic players, players that have been really good domestically. They'll also even at times use journalists as somebody who will be a summariser as well yep. and that also works as well. So yeah, I enjoy the, the, the sort of balance that, that radio brings to it. There are every now and again those the TV broadcasters that will see the value in bringing the broadcasters in, which I think is important. And Harsha Bogley, he obviously is one of the, yeah, the big names that, that, that come out. And you, you can't deny how good he is, how popular he is. People absolutely love listening to him. And 
Alison Mitchell again. She is obviously she's she's done amazing work, and it's so good to see because it does make you sort of think, okay, well, maybe it's possible for me to do it. I'd be interested to see um, wh- what happens with the hundred next year with BBC now bringing in some TV coverage. If they're going to have the same sort of balance, yeah, what what their what their approach will be from mm. there because it it could be an opportunity to well. They're saying they want a completely new audience, basically. Yeah. So do they go for something completely different? I think so much of it is about having the ability, having the, the resources to be able to capture a moment and describe a moment well. And there would be some former players who can do that and who can broadcast really well, but it's not necessarily everybody. And just because you made 30 test hundreds doesn't mean that you can give the most uh, emotionally capture the moment in the best possible way when something really significant happens and, and those are the moments I think where a, a professional broadcaster whatever their background is the biggest possible asset when the moment really matters and when the description of it matters and when the commentary of that is going to be replayed in 20 years time as as the you know the defining description of that moment You've got to get it right. Oh, absolutely. And there, there are obviously some past players who are brilliant at it. Ian Bishop, I think, I think he's absolutely. fantastic. I mean, oh, the, the remember little, the name. <laughs> but, but also the package of him with uh, with Carlos Brathwaite in, in, against New Zealand the other night, the 100. You know, that was That was ex- extraordinary commentary and, and they cut it together beautifully. Absolutely brilliant. And, and he, he, for me, he, I, I mean... Uh, I absolutely love working with him. I think he's a fantastic broadcaster. And, of course, he's, he is a past player who's also very humble. You ask him about his playing career and he kind of brushes you aside and wants to sort of talk about somebody else. So there are past players who do it really well, but there are also some broadcasters who would do it really well also. And by contrast, there are some past players who are just not built for commentary and there's some broadcasters who maybe should be thinking about doing something else possibly. <laughs> but, and that works with anything, doesn't it? I mean, it's the same with coaching. Some international, former internationals make brilliant and coaches and others it's not necessarily for them they find it very difficult to coach players and get them to do the things that they actually want them to do yeah Lawrence Booth who was on our show oh, a couple of months ago now wrote a really good piece for the Night Watchman a couple of years ago about the 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 power of the outside observer when it comes to writing about cricket and I think the same applies for commentary another thread of your career which is interesting to Jeff and I is the fact that like us you're a freelancer that is to say we lead a really weird life a very transient odd <laughs> existence a very nomadic um uh, way that we get from place to place and so forth and it can be quite hard graph but like us you've made the decision to to be a a, a traditional freelancer how do you find balancing that because i guess the major affliction for freelancers it's very hard to say no it's very hard to say no and that we that's one of the pieces of advice actually one of the first things glenn mitchell did say to me is don't say yes to everything because there are going to be certain things certain bodies of work that are not going to be good for your career they might be good for somebody else but they're not going to be necessarily good for you don't say yes to everything and also you you always want to impress in the beginning so you end up when you first start doing a lot for free and people will turn around and say oh but you know you're just talking about the game why can't you just do that for free but that's how I make my living. So this is, you know, it's, it's my experience, my expertise, my, my thoughts. That's how I make a living. So I think that's important. But, yeah, freelancing is an interesting life. There's some amazing pluses about it. One, you obviously make your own time. You make your own off time as well. So you can go on holiday, you know, whenever you want to, yeah. if, if funds allow it, of course. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's an interesting one. In theory, one. yeah. Yeah, in theory, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it is scary because you don't always know what's coming in for the year and you try and budget as much as you can. But that word budget, I, I, don't, I think I'm yet to actually really understand what a budget is <laughs> it's also weirdly competitive and yes. i don't i try not to think of it this way i try to think of it as a as a 
Collaborative. As a collaborative effort mm. where communally we want to see everyone else do well, but it's almost impossibly not, impossible rather, not to think of uh, some parts of it as competitive because by extension, if you've been selected, someone else has missed out and vice yeah. versa. Uh, and and it, can, it can be tough because the freelance community in the cricket world, we're all very close. That's the thing. I think we're, we're kind of like a family. It's a smallish family, but it's starting to get sort of bigger and bigger the pool of commentators is obviously starting to get yep. bigger which is great for the game and the women's game is getting bigger and bigger which means you're bringing in you have to bring in more commentators there's more and more t20 competitions around the world so there's a lot of opportunities but it is still scary at times when you think oh hang on if i'm not sort of front of mind for this tournament the next tournament i might not get work there's yeah. always that possibility if you set this one out and someone mm. else does really well and and yeah. so on but then as you say you, you never want to be thinking that way because so much of the time we're relying on each other and, and helping each other out and there's a, a this inherent collegiality in that freelance best community. broadcast that i ever worked on was definitely the women's world cup in 2017 because everybody Worked to a common goal. Oof. Everybody. I, I wanted to ask you about and, that and specifically. Like crazy. <laughs> we did. We did. I mean, I remember one day now. I think it was you and I, uh, and Jeff as well, yeah, where the, the three the of us were running. Bristol. We were running from television to radio for the whole hundred overs of the yeah. game, and it was an exhilarating experience. Yeah. And I loved yeah. every heartbeat of it. But mm. you know, that stands out as some of the the more high octane work we've had to do, and it wouldn't have worked unless we had each other to rely on. But the 2017 World Cup, Nat, and I hope you don't mind me asking you this, but it left a, a, a an indelible mark on you, and left lit, a literal mark on on you as well i mean you, you yeah. were so you were so um you were so touched and moved by that summer and the experience we all shared together that you you went and inked up i did i got an ink tattoo on on, on the back here on my left shoulder <laughs> don't know if you can see it you can't see it on the podcast no but you won't be able to you guys can see it I, i've seen it before i know that i know the uh, the uh, wwc 2017 and the microphone and so yeah. forth to, and to, then the logo the, the, picture, the logo, logo. Uh, i mean this uh, perhaps relates to that to an extent but Having had conversations with you after dark and you know, when we're, we're socialising, yes. you have a spiritual side to you. Like yes. you, have a, you, have, uh, you have an energy about you, which I think that lends itself to like, yeah, getting a tattoo about a great moment. It, <laughs> yeah. it's, it sort of feels like the way that you're built in that you've got this strong sense of um, embracing the moment and, and, and reflecting on things that are really important. Sometimes to my detriment, especially when you're on a diet, for example, <laughs> and you see the cake that we had yeah, at Lourdes, yeah, like, yeah. that's me embracing the moment. Oh, that <laughs> cake looks great. I'm going to eat it now. And then later you start thinking, did I really just do that? Um, but no, the, 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 the tat, I mean, it was, it was a, a, a big moment in my career to be part of the Women's World Cup. It was also a big moment in women's sport. Mm. To be at that final 26,500 people, the, the hundreds of millions of people that watched the tournament, it was groundbreaking. Mm. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do since then, and I, they really need to obviously keep the momentum going. That's incredibly important, but I, f I do think it's important to embrace that moment and to never, never forget it. I think, I think that is really important. And... I suppose in a way that's where the spirituality sort of comes in as well. I believe in the universe providing and you also giving back to the universe mm. as well. I believe in all of that. So I think that's important. And it's got nothing to do with religion. It's got nothing to do with any of that stuff. It's just I believe that if there's something that I want, I can get it, but I've also got to then give back something mm. as well yeah. at the same time. And, and I'm aware that you know people. some people might think that we're kind of hamming it up the way Adam and I have talked about it as well. But being at that match that day, there was this palpable emotion to it you know you were all over the place Ellie Mitchell was Isha everybody was you know either thinking about crying or had just been crying <laughs> or, or was about to cry or um, it, 
but but the the tension in the air and and the investment, the focus on the field, and and as England started running through those wickets at the end, it was just one of the most extraordinary sporting experiences. I, I loved every minute of it, everything. The lead up to it, the the waking up in the morning, all those things. I mean, I cried at the semi final when South Africa ended up losing in that very tight finish. Yeah. I won't lie, I did cry. And then I, Ebony was in tears at the final when when England won. Obviously, tears of joy. Isha was also feeling it as well. Ali would have been certainly feeling it. Um, I think Mel and I, who were neutrals, also kind of got caught up in it. Lisa Stalaika as well got caught up in this a bit of sort of emotion. Hearing the drums at Lords, they let the drums in at yeah, Lords. I couldn't right. believe yeah. it. It was great. It just added, obviously, to the atmosphere. We had a beautiful Indian contingent next to our, our sort of left-hand side of the commentary box. Mostly everybody on the, our right-hand side of the commentary box was English fans. And you, you, the best part about that was that if India did something well, then obviously the Indian fans would go crazy. If England did yeah. something well, then the England fans would go crazy as well. So it created this beautiful atmosphere with this sort of push and pull with the crowd. And oh, you, you, those, are, those are moments that you're never going to probably replicate that again. It's never going to be exactly the same. Um, and I think it, it's, it's obviously important then to just take that momentum forward. Um, we, we spoke to Claire Connor uh, about that day on the show, oh, geez, about two years ago possibly mm-hmm. now. My memories of it sitting in the, in the box over here, we're looking out to the right in the grandstand here, and the response to it was just so... Uh, joyous um, in a way that you don't ne- always necessarily get with men's cricket. Like yeah. it just felt like a different. And, and also, I think Claire spoke about the the sound of the game. It didn't. It sounded more youthful. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there was quite a lovely contrast between the fact that all of the grandstands around the Lords, around the Horseshoe, were all full, and the Pavilion wasn't. And that mm. really stood out all day. That the, the MCC did not embrace the Women's World Cup for whatever reason, not administratively. M- administratively, the MCC is a, a very progressive organisation, but the membership didn't show up to that final, which which was a real contrast because the rest of the ground was heaving when Anya yeah. went on and took that took that final wicket. But that final spell, five for eleven in five overs or whatever it was to blast through India's lower order from kind of nowhere. I said at the time on it's the best thing I've seen live at at any international game of cricket was that spell on the basis of the the response around the ground. So I can fully understand why there was a lot of emotion from those who'd played professional women's cricket when they were playing in front of you. Look at the 2009 World Cup final when England won the World Cup then. As Ali Mitchell, I think, who might have been there um, commentating on that, she wrote that it was was, pretty much friends and family. Mm. Friends and family saw England win the previous World Cup and then this one, the one in 2017 was a completely different experience. Totally different experience and I think the the great thing was watching the kids stay behind because they wanted autographs from the players and and, and that type of thing and the most beautiful photo as well of Anya Shrubsall when she was younger looking into Lourdes and then seeing her when she's older. I mean, With her dad, watching her dad play at Lourdes and then replicating the the photo. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Most incredible moments. Those are moments that are are very, very special. Obviously her with her arms outstretched. It would have been great if that was the picture they used on the front of the Wisden. I mean, the picture of yeah. the trophy's great, but I would have rather had the one with the emotion, arms outstretched, looking to the heavens where she, she ended up winning the game for England. But I think what the best part about it is that we can talk about all these moments and how mm. precious it was and that we all remember it. There's so many people who have an experience of that day. And as you said, in previous World Cups, you would never have had that opportunity for everybody to start talking about what their experience was from that day. And that it's possible to go back and see it again. You know, it's not yeah, lost in the, in the mists of time. Yeah. Another thing that is going to be special is Test Match number 86 for you. You've done 85, but 86 will be the first women's test that you've called. You were doing the Ashes test between Australia and England uh, in, 
a couple of weeks from now, just after the World Cup final. Yeah, 18th of July. Can't wait for that day in Taunton. I'm obviously hoping that from a cricket point of view that there's going to be a good wicket that's going to produce some really good cricket. Um, The women's game being very different to the men's. I watched a lot of um, the previous test match, which you had that opportunity to stream it, which, of course, you wouldn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard the stories from previous test matches from the likes of Charlotte Edwards, Lydia Greenway, Ebony Rainford-Brent, Ishiguro. They've all told me stories of previous test matches uh, Mel Jones, Lisa Stalaker, they've all given me their sort of accounts of ones that they've either watched or played in. And it's 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 so interesting to, to listen to the rivalry between the two teams because we always talk about the men's rivalry and the Ashes and how big it is and you know, England and Australia live for that. But the women do as well. It's 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 in my opinion, a better format as well because they've got the points for the ODIs, points for the T20s, points yeah. for the Test match. And I think that's a great way to do it. That's my opinion. Some will say, no, the Test matches are all that's important. And that's, yeah. that's fair enough. Um, I actually think it's a, a format they should adopt for all women's series around the world because it doesn't take much to schedule a four-day Test match. It doesn't take much at all from a logistical point of view. It's only an extra four days. That's not a lot. Everybody's hungry for it within the game as well. You know, all of the players from exactly. other teams want it. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, some, sometimes when you talk to administrators about this, which we have quite a bit, they point to South Africa as not having, as one of the countries doesn't have the capacity for it. They say that Australia and England have played Test cricket, but um, in order to make it cross over more borders, it would require multi-day cricket in South Africa, India, the West Indies, and other countries which are at that next. I wouldn't say next tier down. That's probably not yeah. quite a fair depiction, but haven't quite had as much professionalisation as yet. Is there any prospect of multi-day cricket in South Africa for the women? Uh, at a domestic level, yeah. I mean. Unfortunately, domestically, they they need a major overhaul anyway, just for the one-day right. stuff, because they they play once a month against the different provinces, where they play a one-day game and a T20 Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. and then they play with their own clubs. So that's, I mean, that's got to change. They've got to do a major change of that because you cannot be playing once a month and expect the girls to do well and then reach international level and then be able to perform. The, one of the main reasons South Africa did so well in 2017 was because the likes of Danae Fanika, Marizan Cup, Shabnan Ishmael, etc. were playing in T20 leagues yeah, around yeah. the world. That's one of the main reasons that they did. And that's taking nothing away from the backroom staff within the South African team. They're just on kind of a hiding to nothing because a girl comes up from the, the domestic competition and they're not they're not internationally equipped for it from a skills point of view so the coach has got to sit and work on these skills and stuff which you shouldn't be doing at international level and South Africa is not the only country that happens of course so a four day format I highly doubt it but I do think that they could still have the chance to play test matches because they played back in 2014 I think it was against India the one test match there's a few of the players that played then there was nothing wrong with the test. Um, there was a bit of rain about and etc. There's nothing you can do about that. But in the recent series against Pakistan, they played three ODIs and I think five T20s or something. You don't mm. need to play that many. You can play three T20, three ODIs and a test match. We've got Why the format not? now as well with the multi-format point yeah. system they use for the Ashes. It's such a popular format. Absolutely. It's just a matter of, I mean, the players want it. Every player you ask, it's almost a unity ticket when you speak to Australian players and England players too. They're... That they, they all agree that there should be an opportunity to play test cricket. So there is a disconnect between the playing group and administrators who want to see a focus just on white ball cricket. I mean, of course, there are reports in Australia a few years ago of, of administrators at Cricket Australia wanted to get rid of one-day cricket as well. So thankfully, that view did not prevail.
prevail. But it, it's reflective of how this, these conversations are being had. There's a competition of the views, and I think that's a healthy thing that we're getting to the stage where people care enough that we're willing to thrash it out. And the great thing nowadays is that because of the advent of the internet and certain cameras, it won't cost a lot to stream that mm. because you just need a few cameras, one behind the, the bowler's arm on each side, and maybe a square camera. That's all you need. And that's what I know Pitch Vision in South Africa is doing a great job with that. Pitch Vision is up here in England as well. They're doing a fantastic job. All the women's domestic stuff is being streamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't have commentators in the beginning, well, then you don't. But stream it, create the interest. I and mean, it doesn't cost yeah. a lot to do that. Or, but, you know, you can, if you have people willing to do the, the hard yards, like Adam White doing, <laughs> doing uh, Victorian Shield games on his own, doing a full six and a half hour day or whatever it is on oh, the they mic. do it for the Big Bash, people the Women's Big Bash it. League. Yeah. They, they, they have a, a caller and a summariser for every one of those games on the on the website when the TV broadcasters aren't doing it. So I'm certain if there was multi-day cricket, it would get covered. Yeah, yeah. just a lot of butter menthols. And yeah. <laughs> we do it, Jeff. Yeah, that would be over in a heartbeat as well, I'm sure. I'd, I'd do it. I would do it in a heartbeat. Nat, you've... You know, progress happens. It's maybe slow, but it, it happens, and you've been at the forefront of a lot of that. And uh, we appreciate your efforts. Thanks for coming on the final word. Thanks very much for having me. It was great fun. Jeff, the home and the neighbourhood that you grow up in helps shape the person that you become. I can actually contend that this is true because I'm still afraid of bees and um, really don't like the smell of plasticine. Right, so the theory then goes that buying your own home can make you feel different. I suppose it would, partly because you owe somebody a shitload of money. But, um, you, I mean, you've done this recently. Is that is that the case? Do you feel different? I, I do feel different, actually. It's it's a, I feel like a proper grown-up after all these years. It's only taken me 34 and a half years to feel like I'm a contributing member to society, and, and that I am. So, so good O for me. <laughs> so, right. It's really important to A.V. Jennings that when you buy your land or home that you feel like you belong. They don't just divide land into blocks. They design residential communities so that you can connect with others. Things like walking tracks, cycling paths, playgrounds and open spaces. And that sounds pretty good to me. Well, it's particularly important so that in future years when they do some lunchtime profile on a cricketer about where they started out, they can say, from humble beginnings or on the open spaces of wherever it is, <laughs> he used to play with a tennis ball and that's why he's so strong through the offside today. Even now, like a couple of years ago, I went to look, I went to seek out the laneway where Neil Hart and his brothers grew up playing cricket that cobblestone street in yep. Fitzroy I can't remember what it was now but I remember reading about it in Steve Kinane's book about backyard cricket and how it formed the, the careers of so many Australians that went on to play and, uh, and and it still looks just as it did in the 1930s or whatever it was when Neil Harvey was growing up so I can I can agree with that as well yeah it probably does but the yeah. point here is <laughs> the point here is yeah, go, on. go to avjennings.com.au and discover some great places to live This is indeed the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and you, dear listener out there in podcast land. I've been going through a lot of podcasts in the World Cup because there's a lot of time spent on the London Underground where there's no internet and so you, you need to preload your pods before mm. you go down. And then You're I'll listening be, to cricket pods. <clears throat> when we're not doing work, you're listening to cricket pods. Uh, no, I'm not necessarily <laughs> listening to cricket ones, but I'm listening to other ones about about anything else, right. any, anything to give my brain a break from, uh, you know, looking up all of Demuth Karunaratna's <laughs> previous <laughs> innings on a strike rate basis or whatever it is that I do with my time. So I, I appreciate that people out there have us in the same way, and particularly on your, your public transport trips, which can be so boring. They can, as... Uh 
as it's been said before, it's a, it's an intimate space. Uh, the earlobes, often when you're getting ready for, for mm. work or school or whatever it is. So, the fact that you're bringing us into that space we, into your earlobes, yeah, into your into your earlobes, we know it's a privilege, <laughs> uh, and and we're trying to do the right thing by you by providing you with a decent enough um, <laughs> podcast to warrant downloading on each and every occasion. But if you want to meet us in person, and I, I, I can't for a moment why you'd want to meet us in person, but if, if that were your jam, it'd be remiss of me not to mention that we are doing live shows through the UK. I promise my voice will be better than this when we, when we arrive at them. The 12th of August in London at the Hampstead Cricket Club. I promise, I commit to you that we will get the ticket website up in the next 24 hours. So by oh the God, time you're this making podcast, a lot of commitments on this podcast. Sometimes you need to. Sometimes you need to. I did a half marathon about five years ago. I only did it because I, I told people I was going to do it. Otherwise, yeah. I would have backed out. By the time this podcast goes live, you'll have the ability to buy a ticket to our show at the Great HCC in North London, in Northwest London. You're making on the this commitment on, on the basis that I'm the only one who knows how to put up that website. Therefore, I am. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 what, I'm, what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I call, I'm subtweeting. You're, an, uh, you're asking projecting. for volunteers. You're a military captain saying, we need a few volunteers. You, you and you, you're volunteering. <laughs> yeah, quite Blackadder. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm projecting onto Jeff via the dear listeners <laughs> that we are going to get this bloody thing up and then you'll be able to buy tickets and we can bombard you with social media about coming to our shows because I think they're going to be pretty good fun. Yeah, I think they should be good fun too. You, you might want to meet us. Um, I, I had an email, a very nice email from a, a listener named Matthew Share. Matthew, click like, share and comment. Um, he said, I just wanted to say hi, listen to the final word for years. You and Adam are like friends that are over at my house all the time, except I think your faces are the animations that I see on my podcast app of choice. <laughs> I like to think I'll run into you both on the slow train from Trent Bridge one day and you'll both look exactly like that in real life too. So if you want to find out if we look exactly like that in real life, come to the show. And we've got some good correspondence this week from Shane Puxley as well, who said very nice things about our daily show, and that's lovely. I'm not going to read that out necessarily. What I will say is he said that... Um, it's too much of an intimate space. Yeah. Mel- Melbourne yesterday expressed winter in a cliched fashion. Joss Butler's final word interview popped into my phone as I sat in the sodden Princess Park. If the covers were ever removed, conditions there would have necessitated spinners operating from both ends. And he says some other That's nice things. That's a Bobby Peel callback, I reckon. Yes, it is. Slow left arm on a mud pit. Yeah, he says a lot of other nice things too here, which I won't go into because they're a fraction more. Uh, uh, but, but he adds at the end, uh, you two seem at the top of your game and the interplay has a real Ma Morrissey energy. I love that so much. But uh, at this <laughs> but, stage and then, though- And then asked me not to turn into a, a prick. Yeah, please, Jeff, please don't turn into a- Please don't start wearing right wing badges, which is obviously a, a reference to the, the unfortunate turn that the great Moz has taken, which makes me really sad, if I'm honest. <laughs> Particularly when we're spending- Spending a bit of time in Manchester and you're yes. at the whatever it's called social club. Yeah, I remember a couple. Did you, do that, did you do that for me? Yeah, I took the photo for you. Yeah, yeah. We went to the Salfords Lads Club and Jeff took a photo of me standing at the front of there a few years ago. Might revisit <laughs> that next week. <laughs> I think that's enough for us from now. <laughs> the rambling old podcast, this one. Thanks for being with us. I mean, thanks, I, 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 I reckon the Nat Germanis interview, if I recall correctly, was quite crisp. And I'm sure that the bits either side of it have been quite not crisp. Mm. So... You've got to the end. It was it was kind of like a, an inverse dumpling or an inverse lasagna. You know, the, the crisp bits on the outside wrapping up the gooey, sloppy middle. This yeah. is this is where the, the sloppy middle, the gooey, sloppy ends. Yeah, no, yeah. Where the sloppy ends either side of the crisp middle. But if you've listened to us for long enough, you know that most of the time we're on the crisper side. But oh, so but, crisp. But, but Fuji you know, apple straight out but, of the freezer. But, but right now, we're, why would we're, you put an apple in the freezer? What, I'm very tired. Yeah. Well, this is kind of the point I was going to land on. We are tired, which 
reinforces why we are so grateful for all the lovely words <laughs> about the, ta- the Daily Show and the Joss interview and the Maxi one at the start of the World Cup. It's It's been really cool and I really, really hope that you enjoyed Nat Germanos because she's a ripper. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an excellent chat. We will be looking to do more interviews for you as we go on through. Nerd Pledge quiz as well, um, all of the things that you've come to know and possibly love <laughs> and, and if you want to keep up with the end of the World Cup um, find the World Cup Daily it's the little short one that keeps bombarding your podcast feed and if you don't want that look out for the numbers because that means it's a longer episode if it's got a this will be episode five I think of, of, of season six even though it's season surrounded by six. We're in I season six I cannot believe we're in season six we've now run longer than most television shows mm. yeah three more and we'll we'll do the X-Files we'll yes. covered well we've got a milestone coming up oh, soon but I, that's a bit of a teaser here we have we have got a relatively hefty milestone could we jump up. the shark as hard as the last X-Files seasons oh, yeah. where where Duchovny's already left and they're just dialing him in for like a two minute cameo every six <laughs> episodes and, and like the smoking man's running around with some bees or I can't even remember yeah season six is when it tends to go really wrong for shows yeah. so, uh, so quite notably uh, Dexter which mm. you know has four brilliant seasons season five a bit on the Iffy side, but Julia Stiles was in it, so I loved it. And then season six ten went off the reservation. Yes, 10 Things I Had About You. I mean, of course I love Julia Stiles. <laughs> of course, if I were, I'd love to be friends with her one day. It's not even like a crush on her. I just really love her yep. as a friend. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> Julia, as, if, you're as a of man, if you're listening. <laughs> friend of the show. <laughs> if you're listening. All right, enough. It has to end. I'm going to press stop on the recording <laughs> device. Thank you for bearing with us thus far and all through the World Cup. And... Uh, Thank you in advance for bearing with us in the months to come. They'll be trying times, but we'll get through them together. This is The Final Word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, signing off. We'll see you soon. Bye. I had to go about it.